The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 2 of John Richardson and the Future Notes. I'm John Richardson. I'm joined, as ever, by uh, Mark Stevenson. Hello. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Hello. I understand you two gentlemen have been sleeping with other podcasts while we've been away this week. What's going on, guys? Well, we like to play away from home occasionally, John. Unbelievable. You know, I do my other uh, slightly more philosophical um, not to d- demean our I needed some intellectual stimulation, so I just, you know, I had to go and find someone smarter to hang out with. Now, I do, I do the great humbling with my mate Dougald Heim, but I did a, another one this week with a uh, former work colleague of mine, actually, Hannah Fang. The title of her podcast is Crystals, Clits and Climate. Wow. Uh, we, were, uh, we were doing a discussion around consciousness and capitalism. I, I, I've got two podcasts to mention, actually, so... Um, um, well, I only one because you know I love prog rock. Yes. So I was invited onto a podcast by a man who will be known to prog rock fans, uh, a man called Roger Dean. And Roger Dean is an artist. He did all of the album covers for Yes. But talking about prog, you know my band Quantum Pig? Yes. Yes. Well, the, the while I've been busy doing other things, Ian from Quantum Pig has done this brilliant podcast called Recovering Queen, where he and two other proggy mates find a Queen song, cover it, and discuss what it's like to try and recreate a Queen song from scratch for half an hour. Well, I tell you what, if you're into prog rock or Queen, then that sounds like a wonderful podcast. And uh, I personally think that sounds fucking unbearable. But I'm sure he's a good guy. If you know him and you like him, then that's good enough for me. And I hope that in return, on one of their shows where they spend four hours discussing a guitar riff from fat bottom girls they will then plug our podcast and they are as welcome to be as rude about me as i've been about them without having met them well i mean i think though we are talking about uh, infidelity here aren't we which kind of leads us on to today's subject somewhere. we are yes that was very slick well done well done. So we're here to discuss uh, sex uh, this week. I asked earlier on Twitter, I said, uh, I'm with Mark and Ed tonight. We're going to do the podcast about sex. Is there anything you'd like us to discuss? A series of filthy posts that frankly sully the very name of not just Twitter, but all internet speech. Uh, Gareth Williams said, if I send you a little tip, will you put it in? Oh. Uncle Dave says, will you be having anyone on the show with practical experience? <laughs> Somebody says, will we discuss pegging? 
which I only found out what that was this week. Is it something to do with Simon Pegg? Well, it, it could be. It depends what you're doing with Simon Pegg, to be honest. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure there's a whole legal team standing by to um, <laughs> look into this conversation. And then um, he's slightly given it away with his uh, Twitter handle, which is Celibate Monkey. Um, but a guy says, I've been celibate for 20 years. Perhaps you could touch on celibacy. Well, I'm sure we will. Um, given that I was celibate for eight years. We are going to discuss slightly more highbrow, let's be honest. We are intellectual guys who've lived lives, right? I'm sure we can have a conversation about sex that is slightly uh, further reaching. We have not just one, uh, but two guests this week. So uh, stay tuned later on when we get to the unfucking section. We will be joined by Cindy Gallup, who has set up uh, a website called Make Love Not Porn, which is trying to uh, unfuck the situation. But to understand uh, why we are where we are and if where we are is that bad after all, we'll do that ourselves. And we are joined this week by um, my wife. Um, Lucy Beaumont which is a really bad idea you know when we got together we had lengthy discussions about whether we should work together I said I don't think so I think we should see ourselves as two people in the same industry who happen to be in love with each other and um, here we are in the midst of promoting the second series of the sitcom we do, which follows us around in our day-to-day lives, having some <laughs> downtime by going on a podcast to talk about our sex life. So um, <laughs> I'll level with you. I don't like to talk about sex. And the only person I know who is more honest than I could be about my own sex life is my wife, Lucy Romance. So you're with us today to talk about sex. And, you know... I think it's a really good idea to have you on, and I think you're a very intelligent and uh, funny woman. But it was only really as I went to introduce you that I realised what a potentially terrible idea this is. <laughs> I'm so surprised. I feel quite... I'm quite... I can't believe you've asked me to do this. Well, just to be clear, I mean, you've listened to the first series. You're aware that this is... So this is... I mean, first of all, it's a podcast. Secondly, I'll make clear, it's, it's listened to by other people. And three, it's it's about sex broadly as a topic rather than just our sex lives. So this isn't a, uh, a Zoom therapy session with Mark and Ed where you tell them my sexual proclivities. Well, what have you got me on for then? <laughs> it's an increasingly Go relevant question. Designs. <laughs> I mean, um, I've had more sex than you. Yes. <laughs> Is that what you is that what you meant? Since we got married. <laughs> um, what usually happens with these podcasts, as you know, it's a topic that I engage with and I say, oh, well, this is all right, isn't it? And then Mark and Ed actually make me feel bad about everything I've ever done. So I'm hoping that that will happen sex-wise. They'll be able to tell you that every time you've had sex, seven dolphins have died or something. And therefore, my 20s... I saved thousands of dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. So we begin as ever with, um, well, I mean, even these questions have, have more gravitas now, don't they? We begin with how fucked are we? And that is a, a full and frank discussion about the current state of... Is it just a numerical thing this week? Are we going to say how fucked are we and you're going to give me the numbers? Well, kind of, because 
No, because you are right, John. With with this episode, our three questions that we usually ask, which is how fucked are we? How do you get this fucked? And how do we unfuck ourselves? Mm-hmm. Do take on a kind of a whole new context, really, a whole new double-edged sword. So I think we have probably have to talk about the actual sex itself, as in you know how often are people fucking, mm-hmm. and then and then probably the wider context, which is you know how society views sex and and whether that's healthy for us sort of societally and and personally. So I think that's that's probably how we're going to have a. I go mm. at it, and we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I've got views on the second bit, so you know, let's <laughs> rattle through the numbers. And I, and, and I like to frame this with a Charles Bukowski quote, which is, sex is kicking death in the ass while singing. And if it isn't, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> okay, look, so let's let's just, let's just do the numbers. Yes. So um, how fucked are we? How much are we having sex? Uh, well, it depends, actually, where you are in the world. There's lots of surveys, but of course, people don't tell the truth. Mm. So all sorts of surveys about sex, you kind of don't know whether that the way they've answered it has been influenced by their own sort of personal insecurities or societal norms or whether you talk about it or not or you know also if you if you do the surveys face to face or online it's different because if you go to somebody face to face and say you know uh, how's your sex life you know personally a lot of people won't go oh it's terrible they're kind of oh no it's great it's fantastic you know whereas if you do it online you can be a bit more so so we've kind of had a look around at, at various surveys um the durex global sex survey we've had to look at a few dating sites we went to the kins institute of research into sex and and uh, perhaps the most robust is the uk because we're based in the uk the uk national survey of sexual attitudes so um percentage of people who have sex more than once a week or at least once a week which country do you think is having the most sex john um, or the Italians are always... That's what you're led to believe, isn't it? The Italians are the sexiest people on the planet. Okay, and Lucy? Mm. I thought Spain would be quite high. Well, you've, you've both got into the top ten. Italy comes in at number five and Spain comes in at number nine. In Italy, 76% of people have sex at least once a week and in Spain, no. 72%. Yeah. Those figures are ridiculous for any country in the world. <laughs> well, you wait, till you, get to, you, wait till you go to Greece. Don't yeah. go to Greece on your holiday then, John, because you'll be shocked. 87% of people are having sex at least once a week that in Greece. That is absolute horseshit. All these countries, none of them have got a really big crisp aisle in their supermarkets. <laughs> 87, that's 9 out of 10 adults are having sex more than once a week in Greece. Yeah, and it's not far behind as Brazil, Russia and China. Wow. But the interesting thing is, is the discrepancy between the frequency of that sex and then the satisfaction with that sex. Because then if you go across and say, so 87% of Greeks might be having sex at least once a week, but only 51% of them are actually satisfied with that sex. So who is the most, who are the most sexually satisfied nations in the world? Where's Sting from? Nigeria. (laughs) Nigeria, you're right. Yes, the Nigerians are indeed the most satisfied, followed by the Mexicans. Uh, people from the Indian subcontinent come in third. Um, Spain, uh, whilst they're in the top uh, 72% of them are having sex, only 49% of them are satisfied with it. So, so there's That's that. That's true in any relationship, though, isn't it? In any relationship, in any sexual act, one person ends up happier than the other one depending on what's happened. It's not, that's not what you're aiming for, though, is it? You, you can't both enjoy to... it, can you? You've got to just pick one. <laughs> no, you're going back like you've watched too much men behaving badly in the 90s. There's no yeah. such thing as too much men behaving badly. But do you know what I mean? It's that lad's mag idea of what sex is that we're trying to work on, aren't we? 
Well, these figures, I mean, I question all of these figures, given that they've come from the Jurex Global Sex Survey, and frankly, that they've released their figures is a disappointment to me. Well, do you think they should have been hidden behind a large rubber wall? Yeah, they should have kept them back. <laughs> that's the yeah. whole point. We've got a survey. It's got some interesting stuff in it, but we're not going to release it because that's what we do. <laughs> let me down immediately. Who do you think is the least satisfied nation sexually in the world? Well, I was going to ask where we are, because I noticed of me. all the countries you've listed, oh, you, you're not a country, oh, are you? Sorry. Um, <laughs> although you call me part of that <laughs> I, um, I, I, you haven't mentioned the UK once where do we sit on any of these are we not having it and not satisfied I couldn't find it I looked through so many things and nowhere could I find really where, where we were all I could find out was that other nations were more satisfied alright we're somewhere it must be between yeah. uh, the USA where 48% of people are satisfied and this nation, where only 15% of people are satisfied. Lucy, who do, you, who do you think is the least satisfied besides yourself when it comes to sex? <laughs> I'd say somewhere like Germany. Oh, the Vatican. Is that... <laughs> Surely. Vatican City. Ed's going to reveal the least satisfied nation in the world. Yeah, the, the least satisfied nation is Japan. Uh, with actually only fifteen percent satisfaction. Obviously, that depends on how you judge uh, satisfaction. Um, how, how would you guys judge satisfaction? Oh, they, I mean, sexually, it's quite easy to measure, isn't it? I'm fascinated by the discrepancy <laughs> in that 67% top and 15% bottom. is It's such a huge gulf. And I can't believe that if you were to go to Nigeria and Japan, life would feel that tangibly different. I mean, I guess it goes to show how much we overrate sex in our society. That I can't believe I would walk around Nigeria and think, do you know what, everyone here seems really happy and then I go to Japan and think, Jesus, these people need to lose some steam. <laughs> the air is fizzing with sexual tension. What, what about the most unfaithful? Which nation do you think oh. is uh, having the most on the side? Italy. Italy. <laughs> Italy is definitely up there, but it's been pipped to the post by another. Oh, gosh. oh who's treacherous? Argentina. I'm going. I'm pure. I'm basing this purely on football. <laughs> and that's purely based on Diego Maradona. That entire answer is based on both his sex life and the way he plays football. Well, it's not a bad way, isn't it? Who else have we famously lost yeah. to the in German football competitions? Well, just about everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Iceland. <laughs> uh, Denmark. Denmark is slightly more unfaithful than Italy. Forty-six wow. percent of Danes are not staying faithful. Wow. Now, what about the most unfaithful professions? It's, it's notable Italy have slipped off the top spot since Silvio Berlusconi left politics. <laughs> I wonder whether he was single-handedly. Those bunga-bunga parties were keeping them on top of the league. Most unfaithful professions, well, the media has to be up there, doesn't it? We're an no, absolute it's not. bunch teachers. of Teachers, is it teachers? <laughs> no. Oh, that was good, and you answered that very quickly as a former teacher. <laughs> so I'm learning as well. Banking. Spot on. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, that doesn't financial me. financial services is where people have the most off-piste activity. Mm. Yeah. Well, we should, we should do a bit of number crunching. Let's do, let's just do a bit of number crunching then. Uh, on top of that, so the average mean number of opposite sex partners in the UK, the average number for a man is eleven point seven, and for a woman is seven point seven. God, I'm a right slag then. <laughs> <laughs> But then there'll be a massive, again, a sort of generational discrepancy there, surely. Between, you know, I'm, I'm instantly picturing my auntie being asked. No, that's true. That's true. Because the frequency and range of sexual practices also declines with age. So, yes, probably the number of sexual partners uh, also goes down. The percentage population that had a same-sex experience, uh, men is 7% and women is 16%. 
so this is to be sort of double the rate amongst the ladies. And then the median number of times people had sex in the past month. And this is where uh, we get back to kind of, are we fucked? It's like, it's actually, it's three times in the past month, down from five in 1990. So in the last 30 years, we're almost having half as much sex as we were allegedly having uh, back in the 90s, watching men behaving badly. Wow. That doesn't surprise me. Everything's just gone downhill, hasn't it? Because I, I would have thought, I mean, we live in such a sexualized generation now. There's so much more sex on adverts well, and in songs. It. And, but it you doesn't, know, that isn't real, that's is it? killing the buzz, is it? Yeah. Fascinating. Well, our last, our last killer fact is that half of men under 50 have used Viagra, um, which means basically one and a half of us on this podcast um, <laughs> uh, uh, one in eight men describe regular problems maintaining uh, stability due to obesity, smoking, drinking and cycling, which is not the one I expected to come up with at the end of wow. that particular list. Uh, but that's obviously to do with saddle pressure. Um, and, and during lockdown, apparently sales of male enhancement drugs from Viagra to various testosterone boosters went up 400 percent. Wow. Yes, I guess a lot of the usual things in a in a marriage that you might use as an excuse, like being tired from work and being away and things, once they've gone and you're at home all day, every day, you have to confront why it's not, you know, and I, and, 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 and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, do I? I have a mostly vegan diet and I've got no problems, have I? Um... Oh, that's a quicker answer there. We'll just edit the gap out. Um, I'll answer for Lucy there. No, not at all, no. No, there's... there's Solid as a rock, on demand. Say as a rock. (laughs) So so let's move on from the number crunching. Shall we talk about Mm. sex as a cultural construct? Yes. Yeah, and we obviously we can't talk about that without talking about the patriarchy and uh, and how it affects the way we all think about sex. So if you look at the UK National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyles, women are seven times more likely, um, there's one in 10 women, uh, as men, which is one in 71, to have experienced non-volitional sex, uh, which is obviously fairly shocking. Um, in almost every culture, women are... Sus- Academically disadvantaged economically, socially and sexually. Men still hold most of the power, um, re political leadership. They have moral authority, social privilege and control of property. So there's all sorts of assertions of power going on. Marriage was even often a transfer of ownership from the father to the husband. Uh, and as Gloria Steinem put it, a liberated woman is one who has sex before marriage and a job after. Yeah. So, I mean, you've got this kind of underpinning kind of huge structural problem about how we think about the other sex, which, of course, is going to sort of bleed into the bedroom. You know, matriarchies Mm. don't really exist anywhere in the world, although notably that in Native American cultures, we have something approaching equality. In fact, the Iroquois Confederacy, which is sort of combining five or six of those nations, operated under this thing called the Great Binding Law of Peace, which is a constitution in which women participate in all the political decision making, including the decision of whether to proceed to war. So it's the patriarchy. Is a, is a huge thing that kind of, you know, I mean, if we can't, you know, if the whole society is structured unequally, how are we supposed to meet equally in the bedroom? Well, one of the things that you told me early on about Hull that I found fascinating was that Hull is a sort of mini, almost a matriarchy, isn't it? That it's it's built largely on a trade where the men were at sea for longer periods. So the women were house runners and house leaders and they were in control of the budget and all the things that traditionally mm. didn't happen in families. Yeah. Hull, is a bit, you said, was a bit of an outlier. You're not brought up, when you're brought up in Hull to a, a fishing family, as a woman, even, even though that sort of tradition stopped at my granddad, but still my granny brought my mum up and me up 
like men we were like because she'd been brought up like a man in in the sense of not ever thinking that you were less credible than a man or, or even less strong or and I, I didn't I, you don't really know any different but I've noticed it growing up you know just going up to other people's houses and seeing how they interact with with daughters rather than sons but yeah I was brought up to think women are stronger than men and and the men are the weaker ones really <laughs> hmm. I'm beginning to see some I'm going to see some of the underpinnings of your relationship with John yeah we've we never actually I've never seen that conversation extrapolated that far um, <laughs> and I, I regret teeing you up for that but I think biologically though only a small percentage of of women can orgasm can they through penetration so what generally happens is a man does his business and then goes to sleep and that's it or they'll half-heartedly say oh would you like me to finish you off and then it's like half-hearted and then you feel bad so you have to sort of pretend that you've all got and no one really knows if you have and it doesn't really matter anyway <laughs> but they feel like they've done something but actually I think we we could put up with it because it's like we haven't managed to do it in time, the same time. And in and in an ideal world, in like in fil- you watch films when you're younger and, and 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 a man and woman orgasm at the same time, and you keep thinking, oh, that might happen one day, but it it never does. <laughs> which which brings us on seamlessly, Lucy, to, to the emotional context. <laughs> but I think it's really important because because sex is so ubiquitous in culture. You know, you'd think we would all be open, relaxed and comfortable with it. But, you know, often the opposite is true. Many of us find it actually very difficult to talk about sex. Uh, it's often a sensitive and awkward topic that you know raises feelings of embarrassment, shame or even inadequacy. Yeah, it's strange. I do think it is weird. I think that's one of the things I kind of want to talk about on this podcast is like it is like the most natural thing ever. We all do it. It's the whole reason we're here. And I have this theory that it could be could be tied up to our, our hind brains, you know, the, our lizard brains, as they call it. Your lizard brain, when you meet somebody for the first time, basically what you do for the first 90 seconds or whatever, you're basically working out one of three questions, which is, do I want to eat it or does it want to eat me? Am I going to kill it or is it going to kill me? And do I want to have sex with it or does it want to have sex with me? And that's all going on in the back of your brain the instant you meet anything or any new novel experience. I'm just wondering if by the time those three essential questions get translated through the cerebral context to your conscious brain. Is it any wonder that we're messed up about it? Because it's all yeah. about fear and fight and flight and whatever. And that might be the root of so many of our difficulties of talking about sex. But that's it's a fundamental shift then, isn't it, of sex as a means of procreating, which is a quicker and efficient and pleasureless act. And sex as this modern phenomenon as your measure of how successful your relationship is and how good you are as a partner. Those are two almost competing things. Mm. I mean, we have procreated, so you could argue that all of our sex, other than the time we had a child, was an irrelevance in terms of that very base measure of what sex is. Well, I think, I think we'll come on to that because I think the whole purpose of sex has been completely wrapped up in the idea of procreation. You know, so that, that's the purpose of it. Um, and that's partly a political thing. If you go back to the idea of sex without a why, you know, with sex without a purpose. And there was a 1968 Reader's Digest article uh, by author Pearl Buck, who said, everyone knows what the pill is, the contraceptive pill. It's a small object, yet its potential effect upon our society may be even more devastating than the nuclear bomb. You know, and, and this is a really kind of politically conservative idea that, you know, her argument seemed to be informed by hysteria that sex without a why, you know, would spell the end of civilization. And you see that obviously in uh, the Catholic Church and stuff as well. But, you 
you know, we're also entering an era now where the purpose of sex has to be beyond procreation. You know, it, does it need a why? You know, is it okay if sex is not about babies? It's actually just because we want to, to love and be loved. Mm. The problem is with sex also, when you get down to it, uh, as it were, um, it does it does make us all a bit vulnerable because you're kind of so, like, you want it to go well and then you're worried about criticism and rejection and then if you reveal your sexual desires to your partner, you go, well, I'm really turned on by, I don't know, men behaving badly circa 1989 or whatever, you know, that, and they reject that, that can be scary. And so, you know, we're kind of scared witless on the one hand and also, as Lucy was saying, being told that sex should be natural and we should be instinctively good at it. And I don't think that's true, is it? I think some people are, aren't good at sex. Like some people aren't good at dancing or aren't mm. good at painting. Mm. I think I think it does feel like I think a there is um, <laughs> I think there is a. It's not just a skill. It's not something you can learn. I think it's like you know what they say about acting. You can either act or you can. I think some people naturally are just really good at it, and they don't even know why. And 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 not with everybody, but. I do believe in, you know, kept the, the, that sort of chemistry that mm-hmm. just some, makes sort of some people's bodies respond to each other. And I think it, it, it can be in a, it can be in a relationship and then and then drift. And mm-hmm. have people always orgasm then? Is this something we've found like sort of relatively in modern times? No, or? no. Paleolithic art dating back 30,000 years depicts people using dildos to pleasure themselves and each other. What that means is that we invented the dildo long before we invented the wheel. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I think amazing. that says something about, you know, it's not just about procreation, is it? Because you don't, you, I mean, last time I checked, you can't procreate with a dildo. And also we think there are 100 million acts of sex every single day. Somewhere, somewhere right now, somebody is having a simultaneous orgasm. So it's incredible that we are we are kind of so fucked up about it because we've been doing it forever and we're doing it all the time and yet we've still got this problem. So we're moving, it feels, into the, the how did we get this fucked mm. sort of seamlessly. And So what, what, what else do you think is, is to blame for this state where we're having less sex and we're less satisfied other than... Well, I mean, as always, we come back to marketization. You know, we, we've done what we've always done, which is something we come back to time and time again um, in these podcast series. It's a rather deal with the systemic problems of patriarchy and human vulnerability and connection. You know, we marketize it uh, as if the market would solve the problems for us. So sex becomes a commodity. Um, as Steve Martin, the comedian, said, I believe that sex is one of the most beautiful, natural, wholesome things that money can buy. <laughs> <laughs> It's lovely hearing all these quotes from other comedians. I, I forgot how ref- I've really missed this throughout lockdown when we weren't doing the podcast to be reminded of the great quotes of all my peers. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're treat. your peers, are they, John? Um, <laughs> <laughs> is there a time limit on peers? No, but it's it's weird. Like the, the marketization of of everything that we do, and, and and for instance, like so, there's a lady called Catherine Hakim, and she's a sociologist uh, who works on women's employment and women's issues and she came up with this theory of erotic capital right was like a personal asset you know along with economic capital and cultural capital and social capital and she argues that erotic capital is increasingly important in the modern world and it's it's you know it's how much you know sexual capital you have and it's made up of beauty and sexual attractiveness and how vivacious you are and how you present yourself so even in sociology we find sort of the language of the market sort of infiltrating everything uh, and when we're single, don't we? we talk about being on the market, you know, 
And so sex is a product now. And I think it makes us a product as well to everybody else. And, and we know, that, of course, we know that sex is a product because it sells other products, doesn't it? Um, and I think it's because it, the, the marketing professional trainers because it goes straight to your hind brain. You, you know, if you, if you put something that looks sexy up, you cannot help but pay attention to it because that hind brain, which is doing the first thing, which is do I want to have sex with it, do I want to eat it, do I want to kill it, just leaps into action. Although it turns out you can only use sex to sell sort of impulse buys. You can't use it to sell complex products like financial services or, or, or cars. You know, like, you know, you don't, you don't get adverts going, our oh, new fixed rate mortgage will make you horny. <laughs> that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't really <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Have people tried it? I'd no, love to it? see the people that make perfume ads let rip on pen. <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa yes. just for a little while and the, and, the, and the trouble is that you know spinning off the back of that the, the problem is that when sex is almost seen as a consumer good we then start to treat it like we do all the other goods so then we start to demand our consumer right to sex in a way that we might demand our right to food um and you tie that with the patriarchy and then you get the really weird and horrible stuff you know like the whole world online that we might call the manosphere you know the kind of the websites blogs and online forums that promote some odd forms of masculinity you know hostility towards women you know the strong sort of backlash to feminism and the exaggerated misogyny and then at the most sort of extreme extent of that the apogee if you like you get the incels you know this whole sort of nasty ob online subculture who define themselves as unable to find a romantic or sexual partner despite desiring one uh, and then you get all this resentment misogyny misanthropy self-pity and self-loathing you know even racism because of their idea that they're entitled to sex you know that it's being reduced to that transactional level uh and even ends up at the worst instances as a kind of resort to sexual violence uh against sexual active people i'm wondering whether the the sort of argument about marketization and the because it is an and we're sort of talking about it together because there is an inherent comedy about a couple discussing their sex life together because it is whilst it's marketed and it's you know discussed a lot it is still the most intensely private thing that you can do and unless you're absolutely insane it is something you do just with you and that other person except for a select group of people i guess who enjoy to be you know around other people or like to be watched that uh, you're certainly speaking through my 20s it felt like the most interesting thing i could do about myself or the most countercultural thing i could do would be to not have any sex because it was it just felt so pointless when everybody else is doing it and talking about it i just i, I find it actually quite easy to disengage from and it's the one thing i would say in my life like of all the sort of weirdness and the foibles you exploit for your comedy and the tidying up and all that nonsense the one thing that I never really discuss in any depth with anyone is the eight years of my 20s that I didn't have sex with anyone because it just, it felt really easy to me. And I, but I don't, I don't know many other people who do it who aren't in the category of sort of loner weirdos who then go on to do something so horrific that everyone goes, oh, right, I see. Well, that makes a lot of sense then. But, you know, the, the, the marketization and the, the discussion of it is precisely what, so it doesn't surprise me that people are having less sex because just the whole thing seems grubby and so detached from what it actually is that it just puts you off the whole thing. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. And it really does. I mean, there are a lot of people who are genuinely put off full stop. Um, we have, you know, the rise of asexuality. Uh, people who don't or extremely rarely feel sexually attracted or romantically inclined to anyone. 
Um, and this is this is absolutely distinct from celibacy, which is an active choice of abstention from sex. Um, you know, so it's it's an orientation, not a behaviour. And actually, with spitting image being back on the telly, I'm reminded of the old boy George line on celibacy when he said, "I prefer a nice hot cup of tea, but it doesn't half make you willy sore." Um, <laughs> uh, but we were actually seeing the rise of this. Is apparently one percent of the UK population actually define themselves as asexual. Uh, with no interest in sex whatsoever. Mm. On that celibacy point, I'm reminded of a great gag by Marcus Brigstock. Um, <laughs> there is, uh, I think, in the States, a kind of an evangelical Christian group, and, and they're all about, you know, wants to remain celibate until they're married, which is fine in their choice or whatever, but they wear a, a little ring that signifies that they're in this this group. And Marcus just said, if you want to wear a ring and, and not have sex, just get married like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, discussing patriarchy, the entire porn industry seems something developed by men for men. It's a very male view of mm. what sex is, and it's huge. Mm, it mm. is. And I think it's, it's marketization point. It's kind of the ultimate marketization of sex, isn't it, porn? But it, but it isn't sex. And it does have this very distorted view. And I found this amazing quote, which I think enlightened me. Um, and it's from a guy called Harry Brod. He's a, well, was, he's died now, but he was professor of sociology at uh, the University of Northern Iowa. And he said, men look to sex for fulfillment of non-sexual emotional needs, which is a quest doomed to failure. Hmm. Part of the reason for this failure is the priority of quantity over the quality of sex, which comes with sexuality's commodification. So you kind of, because men are so emotionally stunted, and that's part of the problem with the, the patriarchy as well, that you're not allowed to express your feelings, you kind of look to sex or pornography or whatever it is to try and fulfill this gaping void in you, um, which isn't actually a, a sexual problem. It's another emotional problem. And of course, if you can't solve it, you know, you get all these kind of weird reactions, you know, at, at the one level. Mm. And uh, given how important sex is, like biologically and socially and in terms of building relationships, you would hope, wouldn't you, that porn would be actually this this massively respected art form. Like it would be like this wonderful expression of, of the human condition. But as as you've been saying, Lucy, it's just it's just really very shabby. I think it's a bit like, you know, I kind of I kind of hope that porn would be a bit, you know, like the equivalent of Stevie Wonder, but when you get to it, it's it's more like Jedward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't there like the sort of like young directors and stuff trying to make like there is like porn that I see more as like millennial sort of vegan friendly, you know, <laughs> but artistic. But I don't think it's popular, is it? Like you know, art house porn. But I, I mean, I vegan know. food isn't popular yet, so vegan <laughs> porn, I think. But you know what I mean? Like go. it would probably be more like same sex stuff. And I believe they call it pornography. Um, I always go back to the Rod Stewart quote on porn. He said, if I'm hungry, I don't want to watch a video of someone eating a sandwich. Um, but, the, <laughs> but, the scary, but the scary thing is, is actually when you look at the kind of, you know, a Mark and I as reluctant futurists often, you know, look at adoption curves of new technologies and, and new products. And if you look at the, the speed of adoption, like, you know, when airlines first arrived, it took 68 years uh, for aviation to reach 50 million users um, from its inception. Uh, if you go right. something like the television, it was 22 years to reach 50 million users. Uh, the internet was seven years. And then when Pornhub was launched, it took 19 days to reach, <laughs> to reach 50 million users. 
And so wow. this marketization thing is hugely problematic and it is also, unfortunately, hugely popular. And that whole sort of sex tech world, you know, which in its ultimate manifestation takes us into sort of virtual reality, pornography, you know, robot girlfriends, I mean, Harmony, which is the world's first AI sex robot, um, is basically like a sort of, you know, Stepford wife. That's a $30 billion a year sex tech mm. industry. So it mm. is absolutely enormous. Uh, and I think, as Mark said earlier, a lot of it comes back to the fact that we're so uncomfortable with talking about this stuff. So it ends up being covert and buried and confidential uh, and done alone in front of a screen uh, rather than things that we should have flushed out into the open. Where do you see it going then as to the futures? And we will, after this, we'll get onto the how we unfuck ourselves because it feels like we need it. But it feels like we're almost at a nadir now and it's going to go down and down of, as you say, this reluctance to A, understand what sex really is, B, to discuss it with any sort of maturity or interest or honesty in a way that's going to move it forward and see this continuing to sort of just sneak behind doors. And, you know, you, you talk about the the success of Pornhub is evidence that we're raising a, a, a worse generation of men in terms of their sexual understanding. Oh, God knows what a 15-year-old's understanding is of things now. It was bad enough when I was at school. Mm-hmm. I always quote Thomas Pynchon, who's the guy who uh, wrote Gravity's Rainbow. And in that book, he has this great quote. I'll probably get slightly wrong. He says, if you're asking the wrong questions, nobody has to give a fuck about the answers. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to sex and relationships, um, we're asking the wrong questions. And actually, because there's quite a lot of profit in getting us to ask the wrong questions. You know, if if mm. if we were all emotionally connected and had a, had a balanced view on you know sex and we were to discuss it freely, well, maybe you wouldn't be able to sell us all that stuff, all that insecurity. Mm. And yeah. um, you know, ha- happiness is not profitable. To actually have that proper conversation and, and to actually talk about the emotional, we'd have to dismantle a lot of stuff that's very profitable mm. to people, including the patriarchy itself, mm. because the patriarchy absolutely exists on and has existed on the ability to subsume women and the status mm. quo is always very well funded you know why why would you as the owners of Pornhub want people to become sexually enlightened mm. Mm. exactly nothing kills insecurity more than intimacy and all of these things are just a kind of simulacrum of intimacy and that's actually what people mm. really want and they're being sold a completely false ideal an idea a manifestation of intimacy Mm. It feels a natural point then to move on into the how we unfuck ourselves. We're heading that way anyway. I will at this point, an uncomfortable truth is that what happens here, Mark and Ed, and you are not privy to this because you don't live in our house. What you say here, I go into the house and tell Lucy as if it's something I've learned by doing reading (laughs) so that she thinks I am an interesting (laughs) and stimulating person. And such that that might still happen, I wondered if it was a good point now to to release Lucy back into her life. Are we are we so are we like we the can... Serrano de Bergerac characters? You are absolutely my earpiece. Do you think in the future we should get a dildo? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as Mark said, thirty thousand years of history can't be wrong. Yes. And on that note, <laughs> I think I think probably we've moved on from rock as a yes but talking material. about rock i do think lucy should stay for this bit because because it's her era yes i think i think the i think the answer comes from uh salt and pepper uh, let's talk about let's sex talk about if you look at the lyrics the to that song they're pretty good let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be let's talk about sex for now to the people at home or in the crowd it keeps us coming it keeps coming up anyhow don't decoy avoid or make void the topic 
because that ain't going to stop it. So it's all mm. going to be with us. And I th- uh, when you look at that in that context, I mean, I'd never really thought of uh, salt and pepper as uh, cultural icons, mm. but I am able to reassess their oeuvre in light of that lyric. You should give up you should give up the prog rock and take up rapping mark. That was, uh, <laughs> that, was that was edgy. I think we've had some edgy conversations on this podcast, but if Salt and Pepper were listening to that, your rendition may be the closest we've come yet to getting sued. <laughs> what you just did to their work. <laughs> well this has been wonderful. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you so much. Thank take you. care. Bye. So we are delighted this evening to be joined to discuss the future of sex by uh, Sydney Gallup, who is the founder and CEO of MakeLoveNotPorn.com, which is a pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing-the-difference website. Uh, she turned this into the world's first user-generated, human-curated social sex video-sharing platform. And the whole idea of it is to socialize and normalize sex in order to make it much easier to talk about, to promote consent, communication, and all the good sexual values and good sexual behavior that we would expect. Cindy's also had a few challenges uh, fundraising uh, to find investors for this. So she's also raised the world's first dedicated sex tech fund, um, allthesguyholdings.com. She speaks at conferences globally. Uh, I first heard her speak at an event in London a few years ago and was literally blown away, which is appropriate because she says, she describes her approach I like to blow shit up. I am the Michael Bay of business. So, Cindy, welcome to the show. We're going to go dive straight in, shall we? When it comes to the future of sex, Cindy, are we fucked? I think it's certainly true to say that it's extremely ironic that for one of the most universal of all human experiences, um, it is the one that the entire world is most screwed up about. And so I'm delighted to have the chance to talk about it tonight with um, all of you gentlemen. Why do you think it is that we, how did we get that far? Three reasons. So um, number one is centuries of repression, religion, sociocultural dynamics in every single country in the world. What we're talking about is a global issue. Number two um, reason is the patriarchy, because um, historically, every institution, including government and religion, has been male-dominated. We as women have never been allowed to bring our lens to bear on human sexuality, and the world is a poorer place for it. And then the third reason is, very straightforwardly, the world makes it fucking difficult to innovate and disrupt social narratives around sex. You know, that that is a huge factor in why even today in 2020, we are all so fucked up about sex. So who is trying to shut you down then, Cindy? When, when you say, like, you know, that there's a massive intolerance for the disruption of the social narratives around sex, where is the resistance coming from? So that resistance is unfortunately integrated into every single aspect of society and business. This was the one thing that I I really had no idea of when I set out to build Make Love Not Porn. Every piece of business infrastructure any other tech startup gets to take for granted. I can't because the small print always says no adult content. And this is all pervasive across every single area of the business in ways that people outside this sphere don't realize. I can't get funded. I can't get banked. It took me four years to find one bank here in America that would allow me to open a business bank account for Make Love Not Porn. Try doing business without a business bank account. It's extraordinarily difficult. Um, Every single tech service 
that we need to use to operate our video sharing, video streaming platform, be that hosting, encoding, encrypting. The terms of service always say no adult content. In every case, I have to go to the people at the top of the company, explain what I'm doing, beg to be allowed to use their service. Sometimes they let me, sometimes they don't. We had to build our entire video streaming platform from scratch ourselves as proprietary technology because existing streaming services off-the-shelf components will not stream adult content. Even something as apparently simple as sending our membership emails out. MailChimp won't work with adult content. Every single thing is a problem. That's what shuts businesses like mine down when we are not allowed to do business the same way everybody else does. It tells you everything you need to know, I guess, about the sort of the perception of the adult industry as it is that none of these platforms want to work with it. How are all the other, you know, the, the giants of the existing adult industry, presumably they're making a lot of money. How are they banking? There is an extraordinary monopoly in the porn industry, which would not be allowed to exist in any other industry. It's just that nobody wants to tackle this in porn. So um, the porn industry is dominated by one monolith called MindGeek. They own everything. They own Pornhub, YouPorn, Sex.com, Men.com, etc. When you are that monolithic, and when that much money goes through you, you'd be amazed what banks and Wall Street are willing to do that they will not um, do overtly and they won't do for anybody else. So it's not a question really of what you do, but how much you make. Yeah, exactly. Is it easier for you to try and is your is your aim to try and get to their sort of size of business or, or is it too much of a challenge to go in and try and change the operating system for these banks? And- uh, uh, well, uh, well, again, I, I'm, I'm not operating in the porn industry. So that's got nothing to do no. with me. But but what I am out to do is absolutely to scale massively. Because, you know, I realized I needed to create a big business solution to tackle this huge global need. And I use the word big advisedly because even then, 11 years ago at concept stage, I knew if I wanted to counter the global impact of porn as default sex ed, I would have to come up with something that at least had the potential one day to be just as mass just as mainstream and just as all-pervasive in our society as porn currently is. So I was thinking big for Make Love Not Porn right from the get-go because I knew that I can't be effective unless I am the Facebook of social sex. And I mean that in terms of global scale. So yes, I'm absolutely out to raise the funding that will enable me um, to operate at the same scale in order to be truly effective. The Facebook references are really interesting one in terms of scale because what you're very clear about is not wanting to emulate Facebook in the sense of completely washing your hands of the content that is on your website and what you do differently to the porn industry, which when you describe it, the fact that it's different and remarkable is is eye-watering. The people who upload the content onto your website, they own the content, they make some of the profit from the content, and they can withdraw the content at any point, which is the fact that that is different to the porn industry is remarkable. And the reason for that is I simply decided to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to the one area no other social network or platform will go because I'm out to socialise sex, bring it out into the open to normalise it, take the shame, embarrassment and guilt out of it so that we can all talk openly and honestly about it. And so the contrast is that... The young white male founders of the giant tech platforms that dominate our lives today 
are not the primary targets of harassment, abuse, racism, sexual assault, violence, rape, revenge, porn. Therefore, they did not, and they do not proactively design for the prevention of any of those things on their platforms. Those of us who are most at risk every single day, women, black people, people of color, LGBTQ, the disabled, we design safe spaces and safe experiences. I and my team spent literally years concepting and designing Make Love Not Porn before we ever built it, because we knew if we're going to invite people to do something they've never done before, socially share their real world sex, we had to think through every possible ramification of that to create a completely safe and trustworthy space. And so I designed Make Love Not Porn around what nobody else does, but everybody else should, human curation. Our curators watch every single video submitted from beginning to end before we approve it to publish. We review every single comment on every single video before we publish it. And that is why, ironically, you know, our social sex video sharing platform is one of the safest places on the internet because we can vouch for every piece of content on it. And that is also why Make Love Not Porn is a place where you will find nothing but love. We celebrate nothing but love. We feature nothing but love. We are all about love and positivity. Well, there's something extraordinary about that, isn't there, as well, that that human-curated approach? Because, as you say, it's a complete opposite of the way all the other tech platforms work. It's like they'll allow all sorts of nasty nonsense to end up online. And then then they have a massive impossible rearguard action attempting to remove it and take it down again, which also exposes their curators or their retrospective curators to all sorts of hideousness, doesn't it? You're absolutely right. It's like... um... You know, it's like the broken windows theory of policing. And by the way, there's a lot wrong with that theory. But but the principle is we knew exactly the type of content we wanted, which was only real world sex. And we made sure that we were crystal clear about what we wanted on our platform. And we curate to make sure that is the only kind of content on our platform. And so you have to design that intentionality into the platform before you launch it. Because if you haven't thought about all of these things beforehand, that then to try and retrofit, you know, um, a regulation and legislation and moderation into that model, we're absolutely seeing the nightmare that ensues now. And, and all of that militates against encouraging this open, healthy dialogue around and attitudes towards sex that would make us all so much happier if they were there. What do you think the consequences are for a generation of young people who aren't seeing what you're doing and are being raised and educated by the industry as it is now? Well, first of all, um, the issue isn't porn. The issue is that we don't talk about sex in the real world. And so because we don't talk about sex, it's an area of rampant insecurity for every single one of us. Mm. We all get vulnerable when we get naked. Sexual egos are very fragile. People therefore find it bizarrely difficult to talk about sex with the people they're actually having it with while they're actually having it. Because in that situation, you're terrified that if you say anything at all about what's going on, if you comment on the action anyway at all, you will potentially hurt the other person's feelings, you will put them off you, you will derail the encounter, you'll potentially derail the entire relationship, but at the same time, you want to please your partner. You want to make them happy. Everybody wants to be good in bed. Nobody knows exactly what that means. 
And so you will seize your cues in any way you can. If the only cues you've ever seen are in porn, because your parents never talked about sex, because your school didn't teach you, because your friends aren't honest, those are the cues you're going to take to not very good effect. And so we are holding the mirror up to the wonderful, messy, comical, awkward, fabulous, ridiculous way we all have sex in the real world. We're going, it's okay when things go wrong. It's okay, you know, if you can't laugh at yourselves in bed, when can you? You know, we celebrate real world bodies, real world penis size, real world breast size. You know, we we basically, as a unique platform, have a unique ability to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better. Just a quick note for Michael in the edit. Could you just uh, just clip out when we air this, the, the audible sigh of relief when Cindy said real world penis size? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we all made one, right? <laughs> I'm not saying it was me that made it. I'm just saying one of the guys, I think I picked up. <laughs> well, I'm speaking as a, a man who 99.9% of the seduction I've done of any woman in my life has not involved my penis. I, the penis is the very last thing I use. To well seduce. done you. Oh my God. Well done. Seriously. That's fantastic. I think, I think, I think you think I mean like uh, oral sex and nipple stimulation. I'm talking about reverse parking. Um, I like a woman to see me reverse park. I like a woman to see me load a dishwasher. Yeah. Well, well, that that too. But um, non-penetrative sex is a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, I wish society understood the opposite of what it thinks is true. Women enjoy sex just as much as men, and men are just as romantic as women. Yet neither gender is allowed to openly celebrate that fact, and we'd all be a whole lot happier if they were. Mm. It's in so many ways, and it, sadly, it's becoming the recurring theme of this podcast. Whatever topic we discuss, everything comes back to the sort of male domination of various industries and worlds, and the fact that that's been allowed to happen around the biggest and most essential thing on the planet, sex, is sort of is even more staggering. To be honest, should we move on to to the future and how we start to change some of these things? You know, as people, what we can do as individuals to start combating the way things are now. Everything in life starts with you and your values. And so I regularly ask people this question, what are your sexual values? And nobody can ever answer me because we're not taught to think like that. Mm. Our parents bring us up to have good manners, work ethic, sense of responsibility, accountability. Nobody ever brings us up to behave well in bed, but they should because Mm. in bed values like empathy, sensitivity, generosity, kindness, honesty, respect are as important as those values are in every other area of our lives where we're actively taught to exercise them. And so my vision is this, parents will bring their children up openly to have good sexual values and good sexual behavior in the same way that they currently bring their kids up to have good values and behavior in every other area of life we will therefore cease to bring up rapists because the only way that you end rape culture is by inculcating in society and openly talked about, promoted, operated, and very importantly, aspired to gold standard of what constitutes good sexual values and behavior. When we do that, we also end Me Too. 
We end sexual harassment, abuse, violence, all areas where the perpetrators currently rely on the fact that we do not talk about sex to ensure their victims will never speak up, never go to authorities, never tell anybody. When we end that, we massively empower women and girls worldwide. When we do that, we create a far happier world for everybody, including men. And when we do that, we are one step closer to world peace. It sort of feels like that should be the end of the entire podcast series. That was such a good speech. I don't see where we go from that. Not only in this episode, but from I think we're going to have to end every episode. You're like our end credits now. Just put that at the end of every episode. That was superb. Here's what each one of you can do to, to help make that vision happen. There is something that every one of you can do, and this is what I say to people. It's very simple. There's a micro-action, and that is every day talk about sex. Now, I don't mean that as go out there and talk about sex. What I mean is, as you go about your day-to-day life, um, if you are having a conversation where, if we were not so fucked up about it, it would be entirely natural to talk about sex, do that. And and I'll give you my own example of, of, of how I do this. Um, you know, on Facebook, you know, our friends are always having birthdays or going on jealousy-inducing fabulous vacations. And we all leave comments on, you know, the pictures of the birthday celebration going happy birthday or, you know, on the vacation, you know, enjoy a holiday. So I deliberately, I will leave a comment on a birthday post going, happy birthday, I hope you had great birthday sex. And I will leave a comment on, you know, a picture of a gorgeous beach, you know, fabulous speech, hope you had great sex on it. Because you know they are, by the way. And, mm-hmm. and but, but what I'm doing there is I'm being deliberately social about sex. And when I do that, you know, I get comments going, oh, ha ha, Cindy, you're absolutely right, we did. You know, when, when you normalize talking about sex in that way, when you know perfectly well, it's an integral part of everyday life, people respond to that. And it makes them feel relaxed about acknowledging that. I mean, there's a big birthday coming up, which, of course, is Jesus's birthday. Do you think this is something we're doing Christmas cards? <laughs> um, we have covered a lot of the topics. And what happens in this podcast is we, we try and have a laugh wherever possible, because I do think that's, that's certainly my job. And it's one of the things you talk about on the website, laughter as part of sex, yeah. Yeah. which, again, as I, I picture the sort of mid-20s me, I would have found that such a terrifying thing to, to, you know, it's the only skill I knew I had. I knew I was funny. But the idea that I would get laughed at in the bedroom is is one of the reasons I probably used to just do my set and come straight home afterwards. And that's a real shame because, honestly, I mean, mean, sex is just, it's so much fun. Actually, I always remember... um, uh, years ago, when I was working in advertising in London, I was talking to um, one of my female friends at the agency, um, a planner who she just started dating this new guy. And she said to me, you know, sex is just, it's really great, isn't it? It's like Alton Towers in bed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you can't laugh in bed, I mean, you know, half the fun is just laughing about ridiculous things that inevitably happen. But again, even that is such a, that's such a conversation. I've never heard that. And it would never, it would never occur to me in the process of wooing a woman that those two, I'm aware that, you know, one of the things people say they like is a sense of humor. And I'm aware mm. that that's a, a skill I have, you know, to make mm. up for many others I don't have. It would never occur to me to say, I tell you what, I'll be the funniest shag you will ever have in your entire life. <laughs> and, and by the way, that, that is a phenomenal line for any woman, seriously. Okay. Oh, well, you know, I offer that up freely. Mm. I can imagine that what John, what John, you do halfway through sex and after this will be, you'll say, do you mind if I just do a bit of tidying up? Because I feel a lot more comfortable. You are a bit like that. 
lights off. The ultimate tidying you can do, isn't it? Lights off. If the mess just disappears, both physically on my body and around. I was going to add to that, you know, don't be afraid to keep a notepad by the bed, you know, or a dictaphone handy. The one thing I will say is, um, given everything we've been talking about, you know, Make Love Not Porn really operates in the single biggest market of them all. Not sex, not porn, the market of human happiness. And, And that's why everything we're doing has the power to really change the world through sex. Wonderful. Um, Cindy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We often come back to the systemic change challenge uh, theme of the podcast, which is always where we talk about the marketization of something as being uh, a problem. But when you talk about the market of human happiness, then actually I think the marketization of this might be part of the solution. So thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure. Well, thank you to Cindy for um, a very uplifting end to that interview. And thank you also for being our first transatlantic guest, which means this podcast now has a global cast list. Uh, Mark, Ed, any thoughts before we move on to Pointless Futures? Uh, yeah, we should also probably masturbate more. Um, now, so glad you said I, it, because I, I sometimes feel well, like... You know, there's this works on many levels, but I mean... Partly, it's also about moving away from this idea of pornography because we are actually gifted with an incredible, creative uh, and fantastical brain. And so, you know, one thing you could say is just use your bloody imagination. Um, That is what it's there for. But equally on a higher level is that actually uh, there's a wonderful website called Masturbate for Peace, uh, which is all about (laughs) using self-love to end conflict, which goes by the strap line, walk and wait, masturbate. Um, And there's a great description on there. So there's no greater antidote for war than love. Feelings of hatred and distrust form the necessary basis of armed confrontation. Replace those negative feelings with love and you're halfway towards resolution of any conflict. However, any real love must start from within. You can't love others without loving yourself first. And of course, masturbation is the greatest expression of self-love. So it's natural that we, the citizens of the world, are joining together to masturbate for peace. Uh, I think that's a very specific kind of wank there. Uh, right, yeah, there. exactly. Someone who I was, I was probably at my most confrontational in my twenties, and I was masturbating quite well enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> it did it bring you peace? It did not bring peace. No. May West also had a great line. She said, "Good sex is like good bridge. If you don't have a good partner, you better have a good hand." <laughs> you know, maybe sex will be just sex, you know, so you won't have kids being teased for having a different sexual orientation. I think this whole idea that we somehow define ourselves or our identities by the type of sex that we have might seem increasingly mad in future. Um, in that sense, maybe sex will be for a whom, not a what. So the meaning of sex itself won't exist just for procreation, but for the compassion and enjoyment it brings people. So the enjoyment of physical sensation of social bonding and of curious and creative experimentation. Well, there we go. I mean, I, I'm not sure I agree with you, Ed. Uh, this whole kind of free for all, having sex just for, you know, all over the place. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know, because I think that might take away from the, the intimacy thing. Again, it's like, you know, the whole point about sex is, is scary. It is about intimacy with one particular person. And that, and the fact you've got to that place says something, hopefully, about that. And and, and therefore, I, I you know, kind of adjust, just doing it willy nilly, to want of a better phrase. 
And also, if you don't, is all right. I perhaps should have declared this interest at the beginning, but I find it the most overblown topic in, the, in terms of its importance. I, I, it blows my mind, this entire films where the entire narrative of the film is two people trying to fuck each other. I don't care. I just don't care. <laughs> just go with it. I used a line we were we were filming for Meet the Richardsons, and I said, "There's sex scenes in films. It's enough for me to see them going to the bedroom and know that's what they've done, and then you carry on with the film. I don't need to no. see them having sex." In the same way, when someone goes into the cafe in EastEnders, I don't want the plot to stop, and I watch Ian Bailey a cook breakfast for seven <laughs> minutes. I know he's had his breakfast. That's it. It's done. And I just, you know, I found those those years in my 20s very easy. And, I, you know, it's a really important topic to talk about because, obviously, the fact that we're not doing it right does lead to, lead to these tensions in marriages and it leads to probably specifically young men feeling that they don't, they're not sexual in a way that they think other men are and that they're not doing the things everyone else is doing. But fucking hell, broadly as a society... Let's do something else for a bit. Go for a fucking walk. It's just not that big a deal, is it? If you told me tomorrow I'd never see Marcelo Bielsa again, that would upset me more than the idea I'd never have sex again. I'd be all right with it. I'm really glad Lucy's left at this point. Oh, absolutely. She's all right. She's making her calls. You two have stitched me right up there, haven't you? I do think there's something... I use this analogy quite a lot, and I do think there's something very important to learn from sex as a concept, which is... is the ultimate participation virus. So if you want to get, make something good happen or make anything happen, the way to do it quite often is to get people to do something that makes that thing happen anyway. It's like a side product of it. And of course, the side product of having sex is that the human race gets propagated. And so Mother Nature very sensibly made sex enjoyable most of the time for most of us. Most of us would do it anyway. And I think when you're trying to think about, well, how do we move the world to be more sustainable or more just or more humane? Try and think about, well, what would be the participation for us? What's the thing people would do anyway? And sex is the ultimate example of that. We'd do it, we'd do it even if it didn't create uh, other human beings. So sex is a systems change tool or model of doing systems change. And that's, again, you know, that's where comedy works really well. If you like, so there's certain comedians, for instance, you know, who, who have points of view that are political or social, and they want to promote that way of thinking, but everybody wants to have a laugh. But you can make people think while having a laugh. So the, so, so the comedy is kind of like the sex and the thoughts about society or whatever become the become the progeny. John, you are like a, a sort of a massive social sex machine. I was having sex in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> just driving all over the country to do it in a Vauxhall Astra. You were having sex with the minds of your audience, John. That wow. whole idea of like using comedy to get people to think, we should try that for Series 3. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, let's not talk about series three as we go into pointless futures. It's too it's too tight a link. <laughs> P.D. James said, "If our sex life were determined by our first youthful experiments, most of the world would be doomed to celibacy. <laughs> In no area of human experience are human beings more convinced that something better can be had if only they persevere." So there we go. That should give us all hope. Well, that's true. I hadn't seen the competitive element of it. If sex is, uh, if winning sex is coming first, then I am undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> right. This week, when I put the uh, tweet out earlier asking what people wanted us to discuss on the sex podcast, I hope those of you with serious uh, itches have found those scratched. A lot of people requested conversations on something I'd never heard of before, which was a thing called teledildonics. What is teledildonics? Well, it strikes me as a, a pointless future, especially given what we've just discussed and what Cindy was kind enough to go into detail about, the, the importance of love uh, in, in place of pornography. 
teledonic strikes me as a pointless future because it's not about uh, necessarily intimacy and contact. It's about remotely being able to frig someone off for want of a better expression ed is that your understanding uh yeah i would i would put it slightly more politely as bluetooth enabled sex toys but uh yes that's that's pretty much it oh my god how terrifying i mean i don't know about you my printer just suddenly starts doing things randomly it doesn't do things when i want it to do things bluetooth is always falling over or, or or you know the last thing you want is some is something around your intimate parts being controlled or not or randomly by bluetooth you know your local uber will go past and it'll try and give you an orgasm it sounds absolutely horrific stick your printer up your ass and that's what <laughs> teledildonics is that's literally <laughs> it from my research off the back of that tweet somebody it basically started when somebody took the little thing that makes your controller vibrate if you're playing a computer game and realized that if he put that in something else you could put it up yourself and the person playing the game from however many miles away could give you a fun time yeah i'm now worried we're going to get trolled by teledildonics fans and that's a sentence i never thought i'd say (laughs) (laughs) bring it on bring it on if you can get it up mate <laughs> thank you to our guests, to Cindy Gallup and to Lucy Beaumont, and and thank you to you, Mark and Ed, because I feel that you know we, we've we've even ended by saying how important it is that we focus on intimacy and, and personal relationships. And can I say again, it's just been it's been joyful spending this time in your company. I'm uh, going to record a podcast now with a couple of guys where we dig up some old Kenny Everett routines <laughs> and we perform them at length, and then talk about what it was like. We will be back next week where we will be discussing cancer, uh, continuing our early theme for series two of things you shouldn't talk about at dinner parties. So if nothing else, we're giving you information that you can keep to yourself. I think series one was all about looking smarter than you are at dinner parties and series two is going to be about keeping your mouth shut, to be honest, so you're not sat with your nearest and dearest over Christmas dinner saying, do you know we invented dildos before we invented the wheel? Pass the Brussels sprouts, Grandma. Um but join us for that. We have another spectacular guest, uh, Dr. Kat Arney, who has written a, a spectacular book, which we will hear more about. If you've had any thoughts on uh, sex or economics uh, as you come to these podcasts, then uh, the way to get in touch with us is here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Thank you very much for being here. Have a wonderful week. Take care of yourselves, each other, and this goddamn planet of ours. Cheerio. Cheerio.